So if you want to grab your Bible, I'm going to just kind of springboard off one verse of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 is where we're going to uh, springboard from in just a moment. But on December 17th, 1903, at 10.35 in the morning, Orville Wright secured his place in history by executing the first powered flight, sustained powered flight from level ground. Orville Wright defied gravity for 12 long seconds. He flew 120 feet there above the sand dunes of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. This historic achievement was for Orville and his brother Wilbur something that was common to every young boy that's probably ever lived, definitely 20th century and on. The Wright brothers wanted to fly, and they envisioned themselves flying one day. They audaciously believed they could fly, and perhaps more importantly, they believed they should fly. The Wright brothers possessed what Andy Stanley would define or describe as visioneering. Stanley describes this word, defines this word as the engineering of a vision. So the Wright brothers' combination of inspiration, conviction, determination, and completion resulted in their vision becoming a reality. You see, for the Wright brothers, they built a plane, they got in that plane, and they flew that plane. Their vision became a reality. According to John Maxwell, vision is everything for a leader. Now, I would take that definition and I would add to it and say vision is everything also for the follower. And when we think about the local church, there are leaders in the local church. There are laity in the local church. And vision is needed in both groups of people. You see, vision is a crucial necessity for God's local church. And so that raises a question for us. What is a vision? What is vision. Now we could simply define vision as the faculty or the state of being able to see. Today, this morning, I wear contacts so that I can see your faces out there because if I didn't have contacts, I would be nothing but a big blur in the congregation. I've forgotten my readers. They're in my office, but I usually need them to read the really small print in my Bible. So I'm praising God that I'm reading one verse this morning and I'm going to struggle through that. I may hold it out here. Good vision, here's a good statement. Good vision allows you to see things crisply and clearly. We need vision. We need good vision. It ensures, think about this, it ensures that my day can be productive. Now, it doesn't guarantee that my day will be productive, but vision gives me the capacity, gives me the propensity to be productive. It paves the way for that in my life. And the Bible explains this principle to us in this verse of Scripture that I mentioned, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. The Bible says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. The Hebrew term here that's translated in our English Bibles, prophetic vision, is used some 31 times in the Old Testament. It denotes that which is communicated through prophetic preaching. So when we read this, we're not talking about a prophet casting the future, telling what's going to come tomorrow or, or a year from now. No, what we're looking at here is prophetic preaching. It's the preaching of the Word of God. And as we think about this and we think about the Word of God and how it interacts with our lives and impacts our lives, we need to understand that as the salt of the earth, God's people are expected to arrest corruption. And as the light of the world, we are commanded to dispel darkness. And so in the absence of prophetic vision, when there is no prophetic vision, what happens is the reverse. We begin to lose all that God would have for us. So people become spiritually defenseless. When they, they turn their eyes from God, they become vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. When left defenseless, what happens is people become naturally defiant. They cease to acknowledge God. We would read of that in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 and following. That leads to God giving them over to a debased mind. And so they begin to cast off restraint, as Proverbs 29, 18 says. Then people become personally destructive. As they lose faith in God's divine revelation, they are filled with all kinds of wickedness. It's that spiral, that downward spiral that you read about in Romans chapter 1. 
Where and when God's people are prepared to see and to heed God's divine revelation, what we find there is reverse of all that I just described. We see that God's truth begins to build up the person, build up the church. The, the proverb here, as we see, continues. It says, blessed is he who keeps the law. These prophetic vision we see then always produces two things in us. It's going to produce redemptive passion, and it's going to produce a responsive action. You see, God's word is all about redemption. You take it and you look at Genesis all the way to Revelation, and the story of God's word is about God redeeming human man, humankind, mankind. It's about God coming to the aid of humans who are in rebellion against him. When we grasp and heed the divine word, what happens is it creates within us a passion over our own redemption and a desire to see that redemption in the lives of others. We want to see them redeemed. This passion leads to our action. And so we could understand it like this. Vision begets venture. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as we kind of recapitulate all that we've been doing over the last several years, talking about God's vision for our church and how that leads us into venture with Him, this journey that we are constantly walking with the Lord. You see, as a church, over the last several years, we've had God's vision for us. We believe the Bible. We trust the Bible. We're trying to live out the Bible. We're trying to express that through how we live with one another, how we interact with our community, how we try to seek to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the Word of God, the vision of God in our hearts. I love T.B. Madsen's statement on this. He says, The Christians who have turned the world upside down for God have been men and women with a vision in their hearts and the Bible in their hands. Unfortunately, even when the vision has been clearly articulated and received, there are some who would choose to dispel or to think uh, something could be easier, maybe even better than what's been laid out. We see this most clearly in the story of Israel in the Old Testament, especially the Exodus account where the people of God have seen God do extraordinary and miraculous things right there in their midst through Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. And time and time again, what we see in the people of God is that they choose not to believe him in the face of undeniable miracles. They even went so far as to declare that they wanted to go back to Egypt, to the blessings of Egypt, rather than wander around in the wilderness. And so that just leads me to ask a series of questions. Why in the world would a people who have experienced bondage want to be now bound again? Why would they ever want to go back to that? How could a group of people who had seen God do such extraordinary and miraculous things not believe, not only that he could, but that he would do what he said he would do? What would cause this people who had seen the mightiest army on the face of the earth defeated before God? And now, trembling in fear when the remnants come against them. Not trusting that God would go before them into the promised land and defeat those enemies as they moved in. Well, the answer is the same thing that prevents us from attempting great things today. The answer is fear. The answer is the fear of the unknown. See, rather than staking their lives on what God had said would happen, Israel feared what could happen or what might happen. Fear of the unknown is always a danger to us. It's always a, uh, the, the one thing that would trip us up and keep us from following God's path for our lives and for our church. Fear keeps us satisfied with the status quo. Fear is the enemy of change. It's the stealer of ambition. Fear is the champion, listen to this, of the half measure, the check swing, the almost there. Fear softens the hard stance. It rounds the sharp edge, and it dulls the shine of a new idea. Oh, we can't do that. Pastor, we've never done that before. Courage, though, changes everything. Courage changes everything. I said earlier that when we were in the midst of the early days of COVID, and there was such uncertainty with the economy and everything else, we're about to start this major renovation, this major construction project, and people were are telling me, if I were you, I wouldn't do anything. And i got to be honest, I heard that and I thought, that makes sense, but it makes no sense spiritually speaking. God's led us into this. Why would I dare step back from that? But out of prudence, we wanted to just kind of wait, but we didn't want to wait too long. And so in faith as a church, we stepped out and believed God in that. Why? Because we desire to have courage, and courage has changed everything. I've known many Christians over the years that live in fear of the unknown. 
Perhaps some of you have given in to your own fears. Transitions just make you uncomfortable. They, I mean, you hate change, right? All of us, to some extent, are like that. It can make us anxious. It can make us apprehensive. I mean, just Friday, I go into the Y after missing a, few, a day or so. And lately, it's just like a couple machines or a couple stations have just been, it's like, playing Waldo or trying to find Waldo like where's this station at and so I go to do the exercise on this certain station it's not there anymore I'm like where's this at and so in my heart I'm thinking can you not just leave it there come on I know where it's at I want to walk in I want to find it so we all struggle with change but change is good change is healthy in fact as we think about a church we need to understand that transition and change is not a bad word in many signs many ways it can be a sign of health a healthy and vibrant church is always in a state of change, a state of transition. Why? Because people and culture and life itself is always in transition. Right? You look in the mirror lately? You're like, where did that gray hair come from? Where did my hair go? That's what I say every day. Transition is a constant in our lives. And so we can either choose to drive the disruption around us or we can be outpaced by it. We can be a church that wants to live in yesteryear, or we can be a church that lives today and seeks to live tomorrow. And so over the last several years, we've worked to articulate what we believe to be God's vision for us as a local church here called Red Lane Baptist Church. Here's what we know, four things. And we've said this. This is really message five out of the same message over the last several years. I did this for the first time in 2016, April 2016. Six months later, I did a second version of it. Six months later, I did a third version of it. Six months later, I did a fourth version of it. And now I come back to, to in some ways, culminate this, but we ain't done, right? As a church, we're always evolving. We're always moving on to the next person, the next community, the next uh, thing that we've got to do as a church to be reaching our neighbors and the nations. And so what do we know about our vision and our mission as a church? Number one, God has called us to declare his glory. Psalm 96, 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to, from day, to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Who are we as a church? We're a people that declare the glory of God. Secondly, we know that God has called us to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, other passages in the gospel lay out clearly what our mission, what our purpose is as a believer and as a bunch of believers. We are to make disciples of the people across the road and the people across the seas. Thirdly, God has called us to proclaim the word of God. I love how Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells Timothy there, his young protege of the faith, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And who are we as a church? We're a people that preaches the word of God. We don't stand up here and say, this is what I think. We stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord. We preach the word. Number four, we know that God has called us to reflect his love and unity through biblical community. You see, as a church, we understand what the Bible tells us, that we are not individual Lone Ranger Christians. You'll never see that in the Bible, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or the believers in the early church in the New Testament. They're always in community with one another. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are the household of God, many members, but one church, one body, the body of Christ. And so that's what we know about this vision the Lord lays before us. And so what does that look like for us right here among this people called Red Lane? Well, this is what we know about that. This is what we believe about that. Number one, worship is blended and multi-generational. When we gather to worship and praise the Lord together, it is blended in style and multi-generational in its function. You see, our desires progressively learn new ways to worship Christ. Like Psalm 96.1 says, we want to sing a new song, but also we want to sing an old song. We want to sing in such a way that the 8-year-old can worship alongside the 80-year-old, and we're all bringing glory to the name and the goodness of God. We want to engage the hearts of men and women and boys and girls in our worship settings. And so this is why the majority of our singing is congregational in style rather than having a bunch of specials where you sit down as a spectator and watch what's going on the stage. 
We seek to engage the heart of God in our worship settings. We celebrate God. We proclaim His glory. We sing songs that are rich in theology. Why? Because we want to we foster faith rather than feelings. Our desire is to create a worship environment that prepares us for the preaching of the Word of God, whereby the hearts of every generation can declare God's greatness. And so the focus is on faith rather than feelings. Another aspect of how this looks here is preaching being primary. Preaching is primary here. See, the first mark of a true church is the preaching of the Word of God. If we gather together and we just sing songs or we gather together and, and just pray, we've done good things. Now, that's not what you see in the early church. There are those things, but there's always the central aspect, and that is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. The Logos of the Lord. Preaching is primary. So the focus of every service is always going to be on the proclamation of God's Word. We want our members, we want our regular attenders to be built up in the Word of God. So we expositionally take the Word of God and lift from it, verse by verse, working through books of the Bible. Why? So you can know what God's Word says, rather than five steps to a happy whatever. We want you to know the Word of God. And so we don't do a lot of topical messages or sermon series. And if we do, they're typically, if not always, doctrinal in their makeup. In other words, we're going to teach on an aspect of salvation. We're going to teach on an aspect of what it means to be the church. We're going to teach on what it means to, to have a walk with the Lord. So it's doctrinal in its makeup. Yet it may be a little bit topical in nature. But for the most part, we're just lifting from the text, working through the Word of God, little by little. Focus is on faith, not feelings. Thirdly, missions is our passion. Missions is built into our DNA as a believer and as a church. God has called out from this church many people to serve on the mission field. I pray that he's calling others out in the days ahead. I pray that some of our students that are right now in high school and middle school are going to be called out to serve God on the mission field. Those in our children's ministry will be called out to serve the IMB or other mission agencies in hard-to-reach places, reaching hard-to-reach people. Our desire is for every covenant member to participate in short-term mission trips. You see, as a church, we want to be an ever-expanding church, taking and expanding our footprint, our mission's footprint, around the globe, here and there. We want to reach the unengaged, unreached people groups of the world. We want to reach the internationals that the Lord brings to our doorstep. We want to figure out ways to reach the person next door to us and across the road and across the county. We expect them to hear the gospel from us rather than expecting them to come to us. Also, discipleship is our identity. The command of the Great Commission is to make disciples. Matthew 28 makes that very clear. Go into all the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them whatsoever I've commanded you. It thankfully tells us He will be with us always. And so we learn from the Bible that discipleship is the goal of biblical community. When we gather together in small groups, it's not to have good food, but praise God, some of our small groups have excellent food. Like I tell our folks, if you want to make the uh, uh, um, biscuit casserole, Lord bless you, do it every week, right? If you want to bring old country ham, you bring that to small group on Sunday morning, right? You want to, Melissa makes a fabulous apple pie. If you want to bring that to some fellowship we're doing, please do it, bring two, right? I mean, we want those things. We want to enjoy each other's company. But really what we're doing as we gather together is about discipling one another. God has called us to make disciples. And so this means evangelizing unbelievers, welcoming them in to his kingdom, his local church. It's about helping believers grow closer in their walk to the Lord, living up and following that perfect example set forth by the Son of God. Discipleship fosters both a spiritual and an evangelistic growth. And so we as believers ought to be able to answer two questions in our life. Who am I discipling? Who's discipling me? Who am I pouring my life into as someone else or someone else's or other people are pouring themselves into me? Because I am a disciple, but I'm also discipling. That's what we ought to be able to answer. Every one of you should be an active member of a small group. That We just have a strong conviction about that. We believe you ought to take the next step. 
And so this morning, if you're a person that's been visiting, man, we're grateful to God that you're here. We believe God's led you to this place. We believe God's led you to us as a people. And we want to pour into you. We want to invest into you. And so I would say this, take the next step. Don't just sit in this room, sitting under this preaching. It's hopefully good enough for, for one time. But you need more than this. Why? Because you can't be in a relationship with people that you just say hi to every Sunday. You've got to be in relationship with the people that are going to rub shoulders with you, rub life with you. You've got to know them and be known by them. And that happens in the context of a small group. But I would take it a step further. I would encourage every one of you to be in a discipleship group of maybe three to five other believers. And you're spending time outside, maybe weekly or every other week. And you're just getting together to read the Bible, pray together, hold each other accountable. And it's sort of that deeper level than what you would even get in a small group setting. But it's all about, I want to be a fully developed follower of Jesus Christ. And I can't do that unless somebody is helping me in my walk. And they can't do it unless I'm helping them in that walk. Another aspect of this, the way it looks here, is growth is expected. As we intentionally engage people with the gospel in our community, and as we intentionally seek to develop disciples of Christ, we're going to grow spiritually, right? I mean, as you continue to pour into others, and they're pouring into you, you're going to deepen in your walk with Jesus. You're going to deepen in your spirituality with the Lord. And what that means is you're going to be more evangelistic. You're going to share the gospel with others. You're going to be strategic in how you engage people. You're going to be strategic in how you invite others to come to church with you. What that means is we're going to grow numerically, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I know we live in Powhatan, and there's some people in Powhatan say, let's build a wall around the county of Powhatan and not let anyone else in. I joked with some folks yesterday. They were kind of joking about that sentiment, and I said, I'm in the people business. I want people to move to the county. I've got my two and a half acres, the trees around it, so I guess I'm good, right? Like some of us. But we're in the people business. I believe we're in one of the most strategic places that we could be in in Virginia today. A county that's growing, a county that people want to move to, and we've got all the reasons. We are primed and ready in a 176-year-old church. It's unheard of. Growth is expected. And we've experienced growth in the last several months. And so what we're going to see in all this, what we're seeing in this, is professions of faith and baptisms are expected. I long for the day that we baptize every single Sunday because we as a people are sharing the gospel and discipling people and they are following through in believers' baptism. And yet in all of that, there's typically two dominant perspectives present in any local church. The first perspective would view the church more as a social club than anything else. Uh, this view holds to the, the idea that they would prefer this place to be a, a, a place where they can uh, be entertained, network with other people, feel good when they're present, and, and really nothing else. They just kind of like that social club, that country club feeling. The second perspective views the church as a spiritual movement. Their emphasis is not entertainment, but it's discipleship. Man, I'm coming to hear the Word of God and invest in other people. This idea takes the teaching of the Bible seriously, seeking to apply all of it to how they live their lives. They understand that the church is not so much about them, but it's about God and it's about other people. They actively look for people who need to hear the gospel, who need encouragement for the word of God. And that's what they're looking for because it's not a social club for them. It's a spiritual movement. God is doing something through his people. That's how we view the church. Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 we find our marching orders as the local church. It's how we flesh out worship. It's how we preach. It's how we do missions. It's all right there in those Great Commission passages. Here's a statement that we've been saying for a number of years. We believe Jesus has called us as a church to be intentional, strategic, creative, and urgent in how we take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Right? God has called us to intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently take the gospel to the person across the road and the person across the sea. This vision will require us to constantly evaluate our methods and to be ready to tweak them. Remember, we're a church that's always in transition. People come into the life of this fellowship and people go out of the life of this fellowship. I, I, I hate when people leave, but it's a part of life. We'll be losing a, a few families uh, in, the, in the days, weeks ahead. I think one family might have already left to move to a, a, another state with a job opportunity. 
I'm having breakfast, or coffee at least, with a, one of our former elders this week who's back in town for business, but they left us last June. It's just part of life. It's natural attrition. We understand that, so we're constantly changing, but the mission never changes. So it's going to require of us a vision of what can and should be, being willing to climb out of the rut and do something fresh and new for the kingdom of God. So as we think about a vision, it's a mental image of what the future will or could be. And so when we think about vision, there's four components that should be included. Here are the components. There's the problem, the solution, the reason something must be done, and the reason something must be done now. So let's talk about those real briefly. I think I'm doing pretty good on time. What's the problem? In Powhatan today, I don't know if you know this, but there's over 31,000 people who call Powhatan home. That's good. When I moved here seven years ago, there was about 28,000. So 31,000 plus people live in Powhatan. According to the North American Mission Board's um, estimate on the number of lostness or the percentage of lostness in America is 75%. And so if you take that number, 75% of America is lost without a relationship with Christ on their way to a devil's hell. If you put that number over against our population numbers, that means that 25,000 plus people, 23,000 plus people, I should say, are lost and dead in sin and trespasses. Of the 1.4 million people in the Richmond metro area, over 1 million are cut off from Christ and in darkness. That's the problem. What's the solution? The solution is the church. The solution isn't we need to bring a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade in here. The solution isn't we need to get some good, slick social media marketing strategies in place. The, the cure and the solution isn't coming up with something outside of the church. The solution is the church, which means the solution is you and I. The solution is the gospel that we're preaching and the gospel that we're living. The solution is the church. We have the light of the gospel. We are Christ's witnesses in this dark, sinful world. And Jesus has called us. He's commissioned us. He's empowered us to go to those lost in their sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the solution. Red Lane is the solution. You believe that? Why does something need to be done? Well, we must do something because Jesus told us to go and make disciples. We would not be good disciples if we didn't obey the command, the, the basic command to go and to make disciples. We must do something because they are in their sin, dead in their sin, and there's no other way for their situation to be improved. We can't give them enough good self-helps. We can't bring in enough counselors to try to move them toward a better life. No, the only hope for lost, sinful mankind is the gospel. Do you believe that? You see, the only hope for our school system, the kids in our schools, with the mental health issues that we're seeing on the rise, it's not more counselors. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out through the believers that are not school system. Teachers who love Jesus and want to live out the gospel there in the classroom. Students who understand that their life has been radically changed by Jesus Christ, and they want to live that out in the classroom before their peers. That's the solution. You say you want your workplace to change? You don't need more HR programs to come in and change the mentality of people. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ to change them from the inside out, and that would change your workplace. Amen. We are the solution, and we, something needs to be done now because God has called us to go. And why does it need to be done now, though? Time is of the essence. Every single day is a day nearer to the end. It's a day nearer to the return of Christ. It's a day nearer to the end of that person's life. I'll turn 44 this week. I told you when I turned 44 years ago, I'm half dead. <laughs> you guys who are not 40 yet, I don't know if it's really rocked your world, but that's sobering to me. I'm not scared of dying. If I die today, my family's well taken care of. I believe the Spirit of God will comfort them and, and help them through that difficulty of, of mourning the, the loss of their father and the loss of a husband. But it's sobering to think that, man, my years are really, really short. Time is of the essence. I know all the older folks in here is like, oh, you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm 83. Yeah, you're really thinking about that, right? I'll do your funeral soon. 
I'm, I will. I will lovingly do it. I love, love you guys. As we seek to be a church that intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently takes the gospel to our neighbors and the nations, it's important that we have a plan. Over the last several years, we've had a plan of action, and we've been working that plan. So just real quickly, let me just tell you where we've been. 2017, we renovated the children's ministry area downstairs. We cast a vision for that and said, hey, we really, children's is a big deal, right? We want to reach young families. We want to uh, reach our community, reach our neighborhood. Children's ministry has got to be of high importance here at Red Lane. And so we invested dollars into that. We did a simple new paint scheme and, and just try to freshen things up. So we did that in 2017. We also expanded our community outreach events. We uh, did some new things with Old Powhatan Baptist and Easter and things like that. We also resurfaced our parking lot. You say, what the big, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's kind of first impression. Our parking lot needed some help. We had potholes. We had lines that you couldn't see anymore. So we invested, I think, $84,000 to resurface our parking lot because that's a tool that helps us reach people here in our community. First impression as they came on our campus. That was a monumental step for us. We partnered in the gospel work there in Barcelona, working uh, to reach and seek to reach those North African Muslims in the city of Barcelona. 2018 and 2019, we sent teams to Barcelona. We sent a team to Sweden. We sent a team to South Asia. We began planning for construction and renovation projects, things that we are celebrating today. 2020, we partnered with a church plant in Short Pump called The Way Church. They launched the week before, maybe two weeks before COVID shut everything down. But let me tell you this, that church has thrived. They've bounced around to different places, but Josh and his leadership and his team there, they have helped that church to be a thriving church in a very difficult season to be a church planner. We partnered with them financially, supporting them up until last fall. They basically came to us and says, we don't need your support anymore. We're thankful for it, but take those dollars and put them in other places. 2020, we also began construction on the administration building back behind us so that we could move out of this space and repurpose it for small groups, for senior adults. 2021, we partnered with a new church plant in Blacksburg called Divine Church. That church will launch here in just a couple months. We completed the administration building. We finalized plans for the renovation project. And then in this year, 2022, we will work with the Vine Church, hopefully sending a team down there later this summer or in the fall. We will send a team back to South Asia for the first time in three years. We were there in the fall of 2019 and planning to go back the fall of 2020. But as you know, everything was shut down from a travel standpoint. We completed the renovation of this main level that we're on, creating a new space, not to just be cool and sleek. I want you to know that. We're not trying to be a trendy church. We wanted to create a space that's usable, that, that has this uh, kind of welcoming, warm feel to it. So when you come in, you know, I've heard from a lot of folks, we don't want to be a warehouse church. We don't either. I mean, from a pastor standpoint, I don't want us to be a quote-unquote warehouse church where everything's black and, and it's just kind of a dreary feeling. We want this to be a warm feeling so when you come in, you immediately begin to sense God's presence here, right? But ultimately, it comes from the preaching of the Word. It comes from the Spirit that's filling His people. But we renovated this because it's a tool to help us reach our community, to make disciples of those in our community. Why was all of this necessary that we're celebrating today? The reason is because the Sunday morning worship service is the front door to our church. The worship center had gone, undergone very limited updates over the last 35 plus years. And so it was time to update it, to bring it up to speed. The spaces and tools I've been saying for our use, and we needed to sharpen that tool so it's not dull. You ever tried to work with a dull saw? Maybe a dull hatchet? Maybe a dull knife. You're trying to cut turkey on Thanksgiving dinner and someone hands you the knife that you couldn't even cut your own wrist with, right? It's terrible. Church buildings are like that as well. They're important. I believe they're a tool to be used. God gives them to us. And so, yeah, we don't worship the church building, but we want to use the church building. And so at times it needs to be refreshed. It needs to be updated. You see that, and I preached this many, many times over the last several years, but you see that in the Old Testament when God's temple and God's tabernacle fell into disuse. They needed to come back and refresh it. And they did so lavishly. I went through all those numbers with you three or four years ago. And so that's where we've been. Where are we going? 
As a church, we believe that we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of our neighbors and the nations. I hope you've understood that. And so this mission will be accomplished as we do three things. Number one, utilize and welcome growth in our worship and small group times. We want to utilize and welcome growth in our worship and small group times. Hey, this is what I know. If we are reaching people that we, the way we should, that means you're going to lose your seat. I don't even know if you have a seat yet, but we're all habitual. I, I'm a creature of habit. I sit in the same place. I do the same thing. I get all of that. But that means if we're growing, you may not have that seat. You may have to move to another place. It also means this. We can't look and act like typical Americans. You have to sit next to each other. So I thank you for doing that this morning, by and large. You can't space out three spaces and, and do all that. We can only get a certain amount of chairs in here. But we're going to utilize and we're going to expect and welcome growth. And so what that means for us is that we're probably going to have to start our second worship service. I think we can hold off through the summer because, you know, we're all going to be traveling from time to time throughout the summer. And so I think our numbers will dip just a little bit in June. They always do. They'll dip in August typically. July is typically a really strong, well-attended month. But I think we can limp through the months of summer, but definitely going into the fall in September, we envision and we are planning to move to a two-service format. Our I think our goal right now, our plan right now, is to have a worship service, Sunday school, or small group in the middle, and that second service on the back end of that. But we'll tweak those plans as we go. I believe it also, at some point within the next 18 to 24 months, we will have to go to a second small group hour. So we'll have simultaneous worship and small group going on each Sunday morning two times. It also means that we're going to speak and live out the gospel. We're going to share the gospel where we live, work, and play. We're going to personally disciple new believers. It also means we're going to re-engage unreached people groups in hard-to-reach places. We haven't been able to send any mission team, any short-term mission team, for three years. But we're sending one, Lord willing, in the early days of October, going back to South Asia. Why are we doing that? Because we must do that. We must go and engage peoples who have never heard the gospel they need to hear just like we've heard. And so this vision for our church, it really is not new. It's really the, the vision Jesus has always had for his church. He's called us and he's sent us to reach and to make disciples everywhere, across the road, across the seas. And so when we think about that, here's what I want to leave you with this morning. It's going to require faithful stewardship on the individual level. Faithful stewardship on the corporal level as a church. Faithful stewardship will require us to be four things this morning. Number one, it's going to require us to be a praying people. See, the task is far too great to do it on our own. Really, we can never and we're never intended to do it on our own. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you can do many great things, right? we got to be part of the vine. And so prayer demonstrates our dependence on him. When we are a prayerless people, that means we're a prideful people. And so we want to be a prayerful people, locking hearts and minds together as we pray and seek the face of God. Secondly, faithful stewardship will require us to be a serving people. The task is far too great for one person or even a handful of people to do. Here's the unwritten rule in the church, in any church. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Here's the second thing. 80% of the giving is done by 20% of the people. It's an 80-20 rule. I want to reverse that. Let's say that we got 80% of the people serving the Lord in his local church. But we must be a serving people. We must use our giftedness and our passions to serve others. There's no way for us to sustain the growth that we are experiencing even right now if we don't add more people serving in more ways. And so we need help. We need help in the areas of children's ministry. I mean, did you see that plethora of kids that walked out? You should have been thinking, man, bless the Lord of those adults who are downstairs. I mean, God be with them. Vicki, I see you shaking your head. You know about serving down there in those little toddlers. You know all about that. We need people to serve in our children's ministry. Man, that's an ever-expanding. That's a sign of a good, strong, healthy church, that our children's ministry is vibrant and exploding. And so what that means is we need more people to go down there. And so if you're the type of person that says, I kind of did my duty, uh, now I'm in retirement. Come out of retirement. We need you to come out of retirement. If you're the person that says, man, I deal with my young kids all the time at home. I, I just want three hours to myself. 
Fine, get on a rotation and serve downstairs in some capacity. Jennifer and her team need people. We need people to serve in a hospitality ministry, standing at the door, passing out bulletins, being an usher, being on the parking lot. That's the first impression of people coming onto our campus. Man, if you can smile, you love the Lord, and you love others, you need to be part of a hospitality team, part of a security team. We need volunteers there. We need volunteers in our adult small groups. Uh, We got two, three, four small groups that are literally bulging at the seams. We have to birth within the next few months which means we got to take a segment of that group and start another group with them. And what that's going to do is it's going to help us to reach more people. So that requires more leaders, more people in the pipeline to make that happen. So we need people to serve in those ways. What if we don't get all of that? We will hit, and we're probably at the ceiling right now. We will bump back down. We will eventually build back up and bump back down and build back up and bump. We will never exceed that ceiling if we don't have more lay leaders leading in various areas. We need you. You hear me this morning? I'm making a desperate... I'll get on my knees and beg you if I could, but my knee's like this big, so I ain't doing that. It's a sign of old age. We need people to serve. Thirdly, faithful stewardship will require us to be a generous people. You read through the Bible, you see very clearly financial stewardship is a big deal. God calls us to give to him our first. He calls us to give to him our best. I love how Malachi, definitely chapter 3, lays it out there. Chapter 1, he says it even more succinctly. He says, why don't you give these things to your governor and see these leftovers and see if he's satisfied? No, Malachi's advocating you give your first, you give your best to the Lord. And we should take that and bring that into the local church and understand that we as the people of God owe him our first and our best. And so when you tithe, I want you to think about what you're giving to. First of all, you're not giving to a church. You're giving through a church. It's a spiritual investment into the lives of people. As a church, we take the gifts that you give, and we invest them in the gospel work. This work is going to involve missions. It's going to involve church planning. It's going to involve student ministry that's growing like crazy, children's ministry that's growing like crazy here. It's going to involve facilities. Hey, lights don't just happen here, just like they don't just happen at your house. And so you're investing in that so that we can do what we do any given time we're meeting. It goes to construction, creating new tools to use, and all of the other things that's involved in ministry. That's what you're investing in. The Lord, thankfully, has provided wonderfully through his people over the last three plus years. The New Day capital campaign enabled us, as I said earlier, to largely build the building behind us cash. Like We paid for it in cash, minus about 150000 or so. Then we moved into Vision 2024, which is our current three-year campaign. And so what we're seeking to do through this offering is to invest more dollars to expand our or to enrich our ministry offerings. In other words, things that we're doing here on site. We want to expand our Acts 1-8 strategy, our missions church planning strategy. We want to enhance our campus, continuing to, to update new things. I mean, every time I walk down a hall, I'm thinking, well, we've got to do something with that. We've got to do something with that. And it's like a never-ending cycle. It's kind of like your house. There's always things to work on. Lastly, it establishes margin for future ministry. What that means is we want to pay debt off so that we're not paying a mortgage for the rest of our lives, but we're able to take those dollars and reinvest them into gospel ministry, church planning, things of that nature. And so I would say this. If you do not currently give, I want to ask you to simply begin giving the tithe, the first 10% of what God has given to you. Give that to the operating budget of our local church. And today, if you're tithing, I want you to prayerfully consider giving above and beyond to Vision 2024. And here's here's what I hear you saying, even though you're not saying it out loud. Pastor, have you seen the gas prices lately? Have you seen food costs? Hey, I was talking to one of the guys that attends church here a few weeks ago. He's a farmer. He tells me we haven't even seen what food prices are going to be next year. I hope he's wrong, but it's scary to think about what it's going to be next year. I get all of that. Right? I'm trying to get my wife, and she's probably watching right now. I'm trying to bring her along and say, I, I think I should get a motorcycle. I'd look cool on a motorcycle, don't you think? Say, gas. I've always wanted a motorcycle. She says, no. I say, I'm the man and you're the woman. I exercise husbandly authority. I'm not doing that. I'd get hit in the face. Um, <laughs> but I understand the elevation in prices, but this is what I know. God is faithful. He always provides. You can't outgive God. You can't explain it, but you can't outgive. So I would encourage you and admonish you to honor God with first and best. 
and ask him that dangerous question, Lord, would you want me to give more? And just listen to what he says. And if he says something more, do it. Because if you don't do it, you're in disobedience. And so just honor the Lord, obey the Lord, whatever that is. I'm not telling you what to give. I'm just asking, would you consider asking the Lord what that would be? Fourthly and lastly, faithful stewardship will require us to be a going people. Christ has commissioned, he's commanded us to go to our neighbors and the nations. Here's what we understand. You and I are missionaries where we live, where we work, and where we play. And so are you living out the gospel in those circles of influence? Joked with some of our folks here recently saying, man, at some point I think all of Oakleaf subdivision and maybe all of Tillman Farms is going to be a regular attender, if not members of Red Lane Baptist Church. Because we've got families there that just believe the gospel and they're inviting their neighbors to come to Red Lane. Inviting their neighbors into relationship with Jesus Christ. We're a going people across the road and across the seas. I want to encourage you to consider going on a short-term mission trip, even this year, next year, the year after. The nations need to hear the gospel and to have an opportunity to respond in repentance and faith. And so, will you go? Will you answer that call? Orville and Wilbur Wright audaciously believed that they could and even should fly. We too, as a church, believe God wants us to do big things in us and through us. And so as we envision what the Lord desires for us, here's what we see. We see generations of people taking the gospel to our neighbors and the nation. We see hope coming to the hopeless. We see healing coming to the broken. We see forgiveness to the sinful and reconciliation to those who are separated. We see people following Jesus and experiencing the miracle of restoration in their lives. This will happen when we intentionally and strategically and creatively and with great urgency take the gospel to those who are lost and live it out before them. As I said earlier, for years I've been preaching the very similar message to this. Really, I've been expanding it, changing things as things have changed, adding to it really. The, 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 the vision has been expanding and so our church has changed. And, and so I'm going to ask you what, the same thing that I asked our, our church family back then, four years ago. Will you go along with me? Will you serve with me? Will you recommit yourself to missions? Will you recommit yourself to being a personal evangelist? Will, will you, like my family, my wife and I, will you commit yourself to giving to God your first and your best? You see, I don't ask you to tithe and to give above and beyond because I'm not doing it. I'm leading out in that, unashamedly. Will you go with me in this? This is the culmination of a big adventure as we've built and renovated and done some monumental things, but this does not end it all. What a waste if this is all that we're supposed to do. No, we've got a community that continues to grow, continues to expand. Lost people are everywhere. Have you went to Walmart lately? You went to the restaurant lately? You went to the gas station lady? lately? Not lady. The, the lady is the person you put the card in. We don't even go in the gas station anymore these days. But you just walk around. People are lost. They need a relationship with Jesus Christ. How would they ever get that if you don't invest in their lives? Will you go with me? Will you go with our elders? Will you go with our church leadership? Will we be a church that continues to reach people with the gospel, strategically positioning themselves to make a difference here and there? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you, and we just want to again thank you for your incredible grace. We don't deserve it. We definitely didn't earn it. But Father, for 176 years, you have been gracious to us in the good times and the bad times. And your favor has rested upon this people. God, we just wanted to tell you we are grateful for that. And God, we want to ask that you would continue to rest your favor here upon us and use us in tremendous ways. Fathers, we celebrate this grand reopening. We are so grateful that you, you lived up to what your word says, that you're going to do something in our midst that we couldn't believe it if we were even told. God, on the backside of the last four or five, six years, we can now look back in retrospect and say God is absolutely faithful. 
Which means we can look into the future and say God is absolutely faithful. We live in a climate right now where everything is escalating from a cost standpoint. There's instability everywhere we look. And yet we know that we serve a God who is faithfully stable. Which means we will be stable as well. So we want to keep our eyes upon you. We know that's where Israel got off track so many times. They would look at the circumstance. They would look at the the army coming against them. They would look at the lack of food. They would look at the lack of water. They they would look at all of the things that, that, that screamed at them. But they would never look at you. God, we want to be a people who look into your face. We don't understand what may be happening around us. We don't understand what to do at times. But as the Old Testament says, our eyes are upon you. Father, I pray you'd help us now to step into this new venture, recommitting ourselves afresh and anew to evangelism and discipleship, missions, faithful biblical stewardship of our resources, serving, using our giftedness in the life of this church. Father, I pray that you'd use all of that to do something so amazing here that in 15, 20, 25 years, we look back and say, wow, what a ride. What a wonderful thing God has done through a people that seem so small, but they believed in a big God. God, as we pray and think about that, we also understand that this is all only possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Jessica and Chesney demonstrated earlier when they were baptized, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew and to the Greek, which means it's for everybody. And Lord, this morning, as we think about the future and reaching people, we understand that there are folks perhaps sitting in this room this morning watching us online who have never trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And today, Lord, you're calling them to yourself. Lord, you've helped them understand that the gospel, what Jesus has done, is for them. And they must turn from their sins, repent, and by faith, trust in all that Jesus freely offers. I pray that as we move into a time of response, Lord, that those who need to put their trust and faith in Jesus would do so. But Lord, as we as the church, help us to respond as well put our yes on the table, whatever it is you put on our heart this morning. I pray that, God, we would put our yes on the table and recommit ourselves to you and to your mission. We give this response time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.